Uh, how good are you at receiving correction from people? Uh, when someone is brave enough to tell you that you've behaved badly or said the wrong thing or need to improve your performance. Uh, do you welcome the advice warmly? Uh, do you prayerfully consider it and change and grow? Uh, or are you quick to jump to your own defence, to offer excuses, to point the finger at others? Most of us, I think, we're tempted to think that if it wasn't for the people around us who were making us do certain things, we'd, we'd basically be better people. Um, the author Paul Tripp describes our, our natural response uh, to criticism as summoning your inner lawyer. Uh, people criticise us and our first thought is we want to defend ourselves. We want to deflect blame. We, we want to sh- uh, list excuses. But it wasn't my fault. She made me angry. He started it. They tempted me. I had a bad night's sleep. It wasn't as bad as you think. It's human nature, isn't it? Uh, It has been human nature ever since the very first humans, Adam and Eve. Do you remember what they said? Uh, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate, said Adam. Uh, Eve, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Uh, Listen to Psalm 145, uh, 141 verse 5. I wonder how truthfully you can agree with this verse. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. (laughs) My head will not refuse it. It's often not our attitude, is it? When someone criticises us, Uh, Normally, we're quick to shift the blame rather than uh, welcome the opportunity to see ourselves clearly and to accept responsibility. What's wrong with the world? Well, it may be out there, it may be other people, but what's wrong with the world actually begins with you. Your greatest problem is not someone else. Your greatest problem is your own sinful nature and how it separates you from God and needs his forgiveness. You don't need a rescuer from the world. You need a rescuer from yourself. That is the message of these last horrible chapters of Judges. Just in case Israel thought their problem was the sinfulness of the nations that surrounded them, these chapters are saying that Israel's greatest problem is themselves, their own sin. We've had 16 chapters up to today of Judges about how when Israel sinned, God would hand them over to a foreign enemy and then when they cried out, he would send a judge to rescue them from those enemies, from the Canaanites, the Perizzites. I I listed them, I went through Judges, here they are. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Ammonites and the Philistines. (laughs) They're the problem, the nations out there. But in these last five chapters, the conclusion of Judges, those nations are hardly mentioned. In fact, by comparison, in these chapters, the nations are actually described as almost innocent. So in chapter 18, when when the Danites attack the Gentile city of Laish, we didn't read this, but we're told that the people of that city, that Gentile city, are peaceful and unsuspecting, with no one to rescue them. And in the second story we saw today about... Uh, the Levite, 
He chose not to stay in the city of Jebus, the Gentile city of Jebus. Instead, he went to stay in Gabeah. He thought he'd be safer among his own people when the reality, quite probably, was he would have been safer in Jebus. So these chapters are telling us that instead the worst behaviour is not out there. The worst behaviour comes from Israel, God's special set-apart people. No judge can rescue them from themselves. They need a better rescuer. Israel's problems are internal, not external. That is the message. Now that's a message for us. We need a better rescuer. We don't need a leader, a coach, a counsellor, an organiser. We need a saviour. We need someone who can deal with the problem of our sin. That's our greatest problem. These chapters tell two stories. Chapter 17 to 18, the first story is about how rotten Israel's religion is. The second, chapters 19 to 21, is about how rotten their justice system is. Uh, These are the two foundations of Jewish society, justice and religion. The first story, chapter 17 and 18, it's about a Levite from Bethlehem who travels to the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, The second story is about a Levite from the hill country of Ephraim who travels to Bethlehem. there There are these hints that we're to see these two stories linked together. The first story is about Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. The second story involves Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. Moses and Aaron, the two great leaders of God's people. So these are not stories from the edges of Jewish society, off in the crazy places. These are stories from the heart of Israel. And it's rotten. The heart is rotten. The two stories are about one bad decision following another bad decision. They're stories where the mess just builds up like an avalanche, just gathers speed. Uh, One bad decision after another. There's a great Mr Bean episode where uh, he sneezes on um, a famous painting in an art gallery, uh, Whistler's Mother. Uh, And then he spends the rest of the scene trying to clean up the mess. Firstly, he gets out his hanky and he wipes his hanky, but his hanky has ink on it. And then so he tries to wipe the ink off with something else and it just gets worse. And then he takes it to a storeroom and he gets some paint stripper out. But then the paint stripper takes off the ink and the painting, the famous painting underneath. And then he decides he's going to redraw the face with a pencil. And it's a complete mess. It's one bad decision after another. That's what we've got in our stories today. Things going from bad to worse. Story 1, chapter 17, it begins by introducing us to a man called Micah. He's stolen 13 kilos of silver from his mum. But he confesses to her, verse 2, because she's put a curse on the thief. (laughs) So he thinks, I better own up. Mum is so pleased to have her silver back that instead of a curse, she blesses her son. (laughs) She undoes the curse. But she doesn't stop there. She's so pleased to get the silver back, she takes a couple of kilos of it. Verse 3, she dedicates it to the Lord so her son uh, can make a carved image and a cast idol. And so by verse 5 of chapter 17, Micah has turned his house into a shrine and he set up these two idols, one carved, one cast, and he's grabbed one of his sons who's going to be a priest. 
Until a better option turns up, there's a young Levite from Bethlehem and in verse 12, Micah installs him as a priest in his private chapel. Now in his mind, he's actually serving God. Uh, Verse 13, he says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. But he's treating religion like a lucky charm. He's got his idols. They're they're like his rabbit foot. Uh, Some people treat a crucifix uh, in a similar sort of way. It's a way to control God. And yet God has spoken, don't make images like the nations do. Don't worship the way they do. So that's Micah's problem, but the poison spreads into chapter 18. We meet the tribe of Dan, who are looking to conquer their part of the promised land. Uh, Verse 7, their scouts find Micah and his priest and his idols, and they also find this unsuspecting city of Laish, this uh, Gentile city. Uh, the The spies go back, they come back with a whole army. Verse 13, they come to Micah's house, and the scouts say... That house has got household gods. Uh, So now what will they do? Well, decision time. What they should do, according to Deuteronomy, is you destroy a place like that that has false gods. But instead, one decision after another, verse 18, they take the idols, the lucky charms, and they say to the Levite, you want a promotion? You come with us. You can be our priest over a whole tribe and not just one house. Uh, The Levite agrees. And so off they go. Uh, They've got their idols, their lucky charms. Verse 30, they conquer the city of Laish and then they destroy it and then they rebuild it and they make a special spot for these idols. And it's only at this point we find out that the Levite's name is Jonathan and he's the grandson of Moses. He should know better. There is something rotten in Israel and it's right at the core. And Jonathan and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan, continuing to use the idols that Micah had made all the time that the the tabernacle, the the house of God, was in Shiloh, where God had said it should be. Israel's religion is rotten, but that's not all. Uh, Israel's justice is rotten as well. Uh, That's story number two into chapter 18. Uh, Sorry, 19. Uh, the two foundations of Jewish society, religion and the justice system. Uh, Story two is about another Levite. Uh, This one is from the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, David read us this awful story. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 3, he travels to Bethlehem in search of his concubine, uh, a woman he's not married to, she's been unfaithful to him, she's gone back home. Uh, Verse 4, her father welcomes him when he turns up and says, stay a while, let's party. Uh, So they party, and they party, and they party, and in the the end, he stayed so long, finally on day five, when he can leave, uh, it's the middle of the afternoon, and they only make it halfway home. They're coming near the city of Jebus, verse 10, and the servant says, verse 11, let's stop here, let's stay in the city of the Jebusites for the night. What will he do? Decision time. Verse 12, the master replies, and it would make you laugh if it wasn't so horrible, no, we won't go into a foreign city, we'll go on to to Gabeah, an Israelite city. Much better place to spend the night. 
And so they stop in Gabea, and as you did in those days, you sit in a city square and you wait for someone to invite you home. But nobody does. <laughs> There's too much hospitality in Bethlehem. There's not enough hospitality here. Until an old man, who's also from the hill country of Ephraim, uh, comes in from the fields and he invites them home to his place and says, Come with me. Whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. Now those words should fill us with dread. Whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. And we soon see why. Verse 22. Uh, Later that night, wicked men of the city surround the house and they start banging on the door and they call out to the old man, bring out your guest, the man who's staying with you, so we can do all sorts of horrible things to him. Now immediately we think of another city, a Gentile city, Genesis chapter 19, a city called Sodom, a name that's still connected with a certain type of sin, except we're in Gabeah in Israel, where the Levite chose to stay rather than the non-Israelite city of Jebus. The Jews are that bad. More decisions to be made. What's get, and what is bad gets worse. The owner goes out and he says to the mob, verse 24, here's my daughter. And take the Levite's concubine as well. Do what you like with them, just don't touch the man. That wouldn't be nice. Justice is rotten when hospitality is more important than human life. And it leads to the most horrific story in the Bible. Verse 25, the Levite sent his concubine outside and the men of Gabeah abuse her through the night. Somehow at dawn she crawls back to the house and collapses on the door, at the door. Meanwhile, verse 27, the Levite has had a good night's sleep. He gets up, he packs his bags, he opens the door and it says, behold, there she was. It's like he's forgotten that she was even there or what has happened to her. In verse 28, he says, get up, let's go. But there's no answer. He picks her up, puts her on the donkey and goes home. Is she dead? Is she alive? We're not told. When he gets home, we're still not told if she's alive or dead, but he takes a knife and he cuts her limb by limb, verse 29, into 12 parts and sends them in parcels to all the tribes of Israel. Now this is just horrible. And we don't know who is worse, the men of Gabeah or this Levite. And we're tempted to just turn the page and move on to the next book, aren't we? If this was a movie, I would have turned off the TV or left the movie theatre ages ago. But this is in the Bible. It, it's, it's there, I think, to show us how bad God's people have become and that they need a saviour to save them from themselves. And verse 30, when everyone gets their special deliveries, they think the same thing as we have. They're horrified and they, and they say, such a thing has never been done. <laughs> and we're not sure which thing they're referring to, actually. It doesn't say is it the abuse of the men of Gabeah that 
led to the woman being this way or, or is it the butchery of the Levite? And everyone says, right, time to make a decision. What's right in our eyes? What are we going to do? Let's think about it. Someone, tell us what to do. Uh, but there's no one to do that, no one to guide them, no one to lead them. And so just like Mr Bean in the painting, it's one bad decision after another. Uh, into chapter 20, uh, all the Israelites from north to south gather before the Lord at Mizpah. Uh, the Levite, verse 4 of chapter 20, gives his highly sanitised and selective side of the story, excusing himself from any blame. Uh, the people decide, verse 8, to deliver justice against the city of Gabeah. Verse 13, they demand that the people hand over the guilty men. Now that's great. That's what we would expect. That's the way justice should work. But the tribe of Benjamin make the next terrible decision, verse 13. They decide they would rather go to war against their fellow Israelites than hand over the guilty men. And the rest of chapter 20 describes that battle. The end result is more than 40,000 Israelites and 25,000 Benjamites die. And the Israelites kill all the women and children in the towns of Benjamin as well. And only 600 Benjamin men escape. Yeah, that's just brutal. That's far worse, isn't it, than what these wicked men of Gabeah had done that started the whole thing. It's a disaster. It's civil war. Israel has been torn limb from limb ripped apart more brutally than the girl was. And when it's over, there's weeping and wailing. Chapter 21, verse 3, they're crying out to God, why has this happened <laughs> that one tribe is missing from Israel today? How did we get here, they're saying. There's only 600 men left. The tribe will become extinct unless they can find wives and have kids and have descendants. The problem is the rest of Israel had made a vow that none of them would give their daughters to the remaining men of Benjamin. It's decision time. What do you do? Any chance of a good decision? No. They promised they wouldn't give their daughters to the men of Benjamin, but they, nobody said they couldn't take someone else's daughters. So first they work out that there's one town, Jabesh Gilead, who, who didn't come to the battle. The, the all-in massacre sounded like a good idea to me not to go, but they decide to attack Jabesh Gilead and they kill all the men and their wives and take the young women, the unmarried women, and give them to the Benjamites to replace the women that they killed in the first place. Now that act is worse than the original sin as well, isn't it? But that's not the end. There's not enough women for these 600 men. And so what are they going to do? Well, one more bad decision. They decide to steal some more women. Chapter 21, verse 19, they say to the Benjamite men, there's an annual festival in Shiloh. Go and hide, and when the young girls come out to dance, go out and grab your favourite one. They think that's a solution. It starts with the abuse of one woman and it ends with the abuse of a whole townful of women. That's Israel in 2000 BC. 
Idol worshippers, wife abusers, murderers. Now in both our stories, 17 and 18, 19 to 21, small sins begin with one person but spread to whole tribes. And everyone is rotten to the core. And so the book of Judges finishes. So what's gone wrong? Well, let me tell you, the text makes that answer very clear. There's a repeated phrase four times in five chapters. Uh, Go back to chapter 17, verse 6, and underline it, as long as it's not a church Bible. If it's your Bible, you can underline it. If not, just notice it. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 6 says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, as Micah sets up his own little shrine. Chapter 18, verse 1, underline it again. In those days Israel had no king, as the rot from Micah and the Levites spread to a whole tribe of Dan. Chapter 19, verse 1, same thing again. In those days Israel had no king, as we're about to meet the Levite and his concubine. And then finally, the last words of the book. The conclusion... In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Uh, No king, the the technical term is anarchy. Uh, Anarchy, it's a Greek word for no ruler, no rules. That was Israel, a place where anything goes. The solution for the author of Judges was that Israel needs a king who will tell them how to behave, who will punish those who don't behave. But it's a simplistic solution in a way, isn't it? As we look on with the benefit of hindsight, because we know how the story of Israel unfolds. Israel do get kings. And for a while there are rules and justice and good government. King David, King Solomon. But if you know anything about their lives, you you know that they're just as sinful as the people they rule. Because that's our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not out there. Our greatest problem is in here. Our sinful nature. Our desire to rule life. To submit to no one. To live as we choose. Israel needs a better king than David or Solomon. We need a better king. And it would take 2,000 years before... God solved that problem before he filled the hole that the book of Judges notices until he sent another king, his son Jesus, the perfect king who gives perfect laws, who keeps perfect laws, who delivers perfect justice, but who also dies to deal with our greatest problem, who dies for our sin, who pays for the judgment from God that our sin deserves. But that's not all. He comes to live with us and change our hearts so that we are able to love and obey him. He gives us power to keep his laws. That is the king we need. Lots of people out there call themselves Christians. But here's what it really comes down to. A real Christian isn't simply a good person. None of us is good. None of us is good enough. 
We're not good enough for our own standards, let alone good enough for God's standards. A real Christian is not simply a good person. A real Christian has a real king. A Christian has King Jesus as their king. Having Jesus as your king makes all the difference. He is your king. He he is not just your teacher or your guide or an example or a mentor or an advisor or a counsellor. He is your king. If you have a king over your life, the starting point of that is, is that you repent. You take off your crown and you say, I am not in charge anymore. You repent of not just sins, you repent of sin. You repent of that desire to rule your own life. And you give up your crown and you give it to someone else. You give it to Jesus. You'll listen to him. You'll listen with humility when his followers correct you. When they point you to the example of King Jesus. You will take on board what people say because that's what people do when Jesus is their king. And when Jesus is your king, you will want to see him honoured by his followers. And so you will be courageous to correct your brothers and sisters when they don't measure up to Jesus' standards. Because Jesus is our king and he's worth it. And because he gives us the power to hear rebukes, to humbly accept correction, the power to change because his spirit lives in us. And when Jesus is your king, Christian men, you will show that in the way you treat women. And when Jesus is your king, there will be a safety and a hospitality and a generosity in our interactions with one another in a way that there wasn't in Israel. Wouldn't it be great if, as people got to know us, they didn't say, there's no king there, everyone does what he thinks is right. Wouldn't it be great as if they got to know us, instead they said, there's a king ruling those people. Everyone does what's right in Jesus' eyes. They follow him instead of doing what they think is right. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this pretty black um, mirror into our, our own hearts. Uh, for those of us uh, who are Christian, we, we thank you that Jesus has, has dealt with our sin, uh, even though it, it lingers uh, in our lives. We, we thank you that we are right before you. We are forgiven. Uh, Lord, we thank you too for your, uh, the power of your spirit who gives us a new heart and a new desire and power to obey you. Uh, Lord, for any here who are not Christian, we pray that you would open their eyes, not just to what's around them, but to themselves, uh, to their own need of you, uh, to their own sinfulness and fallenness. Uh, Help them to see Jesus and to trust him. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.